good morning all. Good morning all. We'll be looking at uh, Leviticus 23. Uh, I hope that our new crew that's living on site this weekend have been uh, engrossed in studying it because there will be a test afterwards, so listen carefully. I'm reading from the NIV 2010 version, but with the 2013 pronunciation. So if any words seem a little different to what you're reading, you're probably wrong, but that's okay. Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at the appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread with, made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, sorry, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, bake with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, 
and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings and grain offerings sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day these offerings are in addition to those for the lord's sabbaths and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you give to the lord so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month after you have gathered the crops of the land celebrate the festival to the lord for seven days the first day is a day of sabbath rest and the eighth day also is a day of sabbath rest on the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. Any questions, Tim? Ah, get that man a drink. That was a pretty exhausting reading, wasn't it? Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the lakes and also welcome to the 1st of December it's a busy month. Uh, pinch and a punch for the first day of the month. Turn to the next person next year. Come on. This is a little thing that we do. I want to see no internal bleeding or long-term bruises. But December is here. Did you go to the shops yesterday? You would have noticed that uh, everyone's gone crazy. This is the chaotic month. Uh, people are unhappy despite the Christmas cheer. And uh, is, is your calendar for December starting to look pretty hair-raising? My calendar's looking a bit like this one here. Right. Each day, each square is absolutely chunked up with stuff. And that's just December. And I 
more and more I'm finding that other months are just as busy and just as clunked up with stuff. And what I find I, I tend to do is I put all my stuff in and then only squeeze God time in around the edges. And what's quite striking when you read this chapter with Leviticus is how, how they organise their calendar. They do first things first. They slot in time with God first and then squeeze everything else in around that. Um, they do that weekly, monthly, yearly, and then on a grander scale as well. So as we uh, track through Leviticus 23, it's my hope that at the end we might capture a bit of the attitude that the Israelites have to God and time, that we might be more intentional about our time. Um, We will spend time with God and we'll look forward to spending time with God and his people. So that's where we're heading. Um, As we do before we always jump into a text here at the lakes is we don't just read it and we don't just think about it, but we ask God to help us change as a result of that. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you very much for this time and this space where we can give you glory. Uh, We ask that you will help us to lay aside any of our stresses from the week, our anxieties, our hurts and habits, our distractions, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, will change us um, to be more like your son, Jesus. Amen. So, as we went through chapter 23, did you notice the way all the festivals were kind of described? There was a, a theme that kept, kept coming up. What do we reckon? What did you notice? I'd like to do no work here. Do no work? They kept coming up. Other ways that the festivals and the feasts were described? Seven? Sabbath and seven. Yeah, Sabbath is the big one. That's what I noticed. As you go through, Sabbath seems to characterise each of these feasts and festivals. So if you open to chapter 23, you'll see at verse 3, before we even get into seven festivals, the entire calendar is framed with the Sabbath. So verse 3, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. And then there's all the dynamics associated with the Sabbath, such as doing no work, as Dave Suda mentioned. So in verse 7, this is the feast of unleavened bread. And on the first day, they're to hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. And even if there's a, a festival that lands... Uh, on a day that is not the literal Sabbath day, the feasts and the festivals are still described as Sabbaths. So have a look at verse 32. This is the Day of Atonement. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you. Some translations may say complete rest. It's a Sabbath Sabbath, a real uh, sort of intense Sabbath. So even if it's not the literal Sabbath, it's still described as a Sabbath day. And then you've got all these multiples of seven that keep rolling through the whole description. There's the seventh day, the seventh week, um, the seventh month, seven years. It just goes on and on. If you were um, speaking the native Hebrew language as an Israelite, you would really get the connection between Sabbath 
and also 7. Fire this up on the screen. Uh, it's always fun to speak in another language, so let's do a little bit of Hebrew. Uh, the, the way that a Middle Eastern person would say Sabbath is Shabbat, and we're, we're all Middle Eastern here, so we'll go really guttural, and together you've got to punch it out. So Shabbat. Three, two, one. Shabbat. Beautiful. And then you get to the number seven, which sounds very similar. It's Sheba. You've heard of the, the woman, Bathsheba. So Bath, daughter, and Sheba. So it's likely that she was the seventh daughter. So you've got all these concepts to do with the Sabbath. Um, it's a rest day, no work, seven. And they're all called Sabbath, uh, all these festivals. That is the way these festivals are described. So what is this weird word, Shabbat, and why does this chapter, this calendar, keep describing all the feasts in terms of this weird word? To get at the word, we need to go back to the very first time it was mentioned. Any, any ideas where that might be? Good stuff, Genesis. So Genesis chapter 2, this is God creating the world, and he creates something on each of six days, then he gets to the seventh day. So the sort of the way it's described is you have God creating something. It could be light or it could be uh, animals. And then it says um, he created it and it ends with the refrain, then there was evening, morning, such and such a day. Then you get to the seventh day and it stands out a little bit different, doesn't it? There's nothing created on that day and... It doesn't have the refrain, then there was evening, morning, um, a seventh day. It just sort of, that day doesn't close. It doesn't roll on and complete and you go back to the start. It's almost like an eternal day. This is the way it's phrased. By the seventh day, God had finished all his work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested. What might the word for rested be, do you reckon? Shabbat. Good stuff. All right, so on the seventh day, God, Sabbath. It's not a word, but you've got to merge the two together. Okay, so what is God actually doing on the seventh day? Rest is an all right translation, provided we think of it in terms of the way the Bible speaks of rest. Because we have our ideas of rest and we kind of take them and put that into the word. And uh, it's a little bit foreign to the base idea of Sabbath. So when we think of rest, we usually think of exhaustion. You know, we rest because we need to recharge the body. It's breaking down, we're tired. We need to rejuvenate. But that's not really the idea because when you think of God resting, he wasn't exhausted. I mean, he, he seemed to make the whole world in an effortless manner. He just says, let there be light, and boom, it's there. Probably shouldn't say boom, because that gets into a hole. <laughs> Flash! <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and it's just there. He's like a, a magician, and he just snaps his fingers, and it's there. Or a theatre director just says, lights, camera, action, and it just happens. So God isn't exhausted at that point. Another way that we often think about rest is relaxation. We're chilling, you know, just uh, kicking back, 
doing fun stuff by the pool, reading the paper, watching movies, all that sort of stuff. That is rest. It's just chilling. That's not really the idea either. Or maybe if you come from a heavily religious background, uh, you may associate rest on the seventh day with all these rules about what you can and cannot do. I've got a friend who, if I was to ask him after church, hey man, do you want to come back and we'll have a cup of coffee, hit the cafe or something like that, catch up. If it was on a Sunday, he would decline me all the time because he felt conflicted to be doing something like that on a Sunday. He felt that by having the cup of coffee out in the cafe, somehow inadvertently and indirectly, he was causing the barista and the waiter and the cashier to work on a Sunday. So these are all ideas that we pack into the Sabbath word, the rest word. But it's not quite what the Bible is talking about. And one of the ways that we can get at this concept is to track through all the ways that uh, the Old Testament is translated into English, this word Shabbat, Sabbath. And it's quite enlightening. I found this very, very interesting. So there's three ways. The first is to cease. So Sabbath can be to cease. And this is the idea of motion travelling along towards something and then you stop because you have arrived. So Sabbath is resting because you stop because you've arrived. Not resting because you're exhausted, but you've been heading towards a destination and you've actually arrived at that destination. The second is to complete. So same word, but in a different context, it might have the nuance of to complete. And this is the idea of achieving a goal. You set out with a sequence of steps and once you have done those steps, you have achieved the goal. And that kind of matches the Genesis narrative, doesn't it? God's got this sequence, six days, and then he achieves the goal of creating a world where he and man dwell together. And the third way that Sabbath can be translated, and this is really interesting, particularly when we're in a a book like Leviticus 23 and there's all these festivals going on, the word can be translated to celebrate, which is a natural sort of flow-on from those first two. If you're travelling along and you've arrived at the destination, um, you have set out with a plan and you've achieved the goal, it's natural that once you're in that space and that time that you are going to celebrate that. So that's the idea of Sabbath, that God is, he has completed and arrived at the destination. He is celebrating, dwelling in a world with a palace-like garden where he and man walk together in a tight, loving relationship. Since the fall, there has been no Sabbath. So as you read the Old Testament story, as humanity is kicked out of the garden and they're kicked out of that seventh day, that space in time where they dwell with God, they, um, there's no Sabbath that appears until the great story of redemption. So we know that, that the Israelites are redeemed out of slavery, out of Egypt, and God brings them to Mount Sinai 
Um, you remember that story? God thunders, booms from Mount Sinai, and he says, you are going to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And it's at that point when he has redeemed the Israelites and re-established this relationship that he reinstitutes the Sabbath. It's a phrase like this. Put this text up. This is in Exodus 31, 13. God says, so this is after the relationship has been re-established. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So when the Israelites observe Sabbaths, they are giving expression to this relationship that God and his people have. They give expression to the sign, um, particularly to the fact that God makes them holy. So you've got this tabernacle that's been built. He redeems Israel. He builds this space for them to dwell, and then he builds time for them to dwell together. It's almost like a tabernacle in time. That's the concept of a Sabbath. And then he gives us the book of Leviticus at the same point in the history of Israel. And he gives all these Sabbath festivals, a whole stack of time-based festivals where they uh, give expression to this sign, this relationship. So we've been travelling through Leviticus and one of the big themes that we keep putting up on the the screen is this. This is how we've been summarising Leviticus. God is holy. Teaches us that God is holy, that I am a sinner and that I deserve to die. But because it also has this big calendar of all these Sabbath festivals, we can now add another dot point, which is God has made me holy. The Sabbath festivals throughout Leviticus, give expression to that point. That God is holy, I am a sinner, I deserve to die, but he has redeemed us and he makes us holy. So what we're going to do really, really briefly is just track through the seven festivals and we'll go super fast. Because, and that's not to say that you know, there's not great things to unpack in here, but just for want of time... Uh, what we'll do is we'll go through each festival super fast, but we'll highlight how each festival has some action or thing that they do that points back to the great redemption that God achieved for the Israelites. And simultaneously, uh, we'll look at how the New Testament will talk about another great redemption, what Jesus did for us on the cross, in terms of these festivals. It will use the same language to explain that Jesus has created this space in time for us. So let's have a look at the um, first one, which is uh, the the Passover festival at verse 4. The Passover festival they did every year, and they slaughtered a lamb, as you know, um, and that was to remind them that God substituted uh, their family for that slaughtered lamb. So God, when he judged Egypt, he went over the houses that had smeared the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. 
So every time when they celebrated this every year, they remembered that um, God had redeemed them. They remembered their great day of salvation. And they enjoyed the results of that as they gathered around a meal as a family. And then when we go to the New Testament, the Gospel writers very much see Jesus as that Passover lamb. So if we look at one example of that, uh, go to the next text, yeah, Mark fourteen twelve. He says that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This is on the night before he dies. So the gospel writers continue to see Jesus' death and resurrection as that Passover, that great Passover lamb being slaughtered. The next festival uh, happens in verse 9 onwards, and this is, no, sorry, verse 6 onwards. Uh, This is the festival of unleavened bread. This happens at the same time as Passover. So if you think of Passover on a Friday night, the unleavened bread festival happens on the Saturday night and it starts. It goes uh, for seven days. And the Israelites would eat bread without leaven. That's yeast. And we see that what they're doing there is they're reenacting um, a dynamic of that escape from Egypt. In, uh, uh, in the story of the Passover, we hear that they had to flee in a hurry and that's why they, didn't, they couldn't muck around baking bread and waiting in Egypt for the yeast to rise. Uh, they, they had to get out of there. So when they ate bread without yeast, they were remembering that God had redeemed them and it was just another symbol of that great salvation. And later in the Old Testament, they also um, saw yeast very much as a symbol of corruption. And that's what Paul picks up in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, which is on the screen. Uh, He's talking to Christians, and he says, get rid of the old yeast. Uh, Sorry, he's talking to Christians who have sort of embraced sexual immorality and they're not caring much about it. And then he says this, So get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So just like the Israelites um, ate unleavened bread to signify that they had been purged from corruption, uh, Paul's saying, Look back at the Passover and likewise live out a life that has been purged from corruption. The next festival is the offering of first fruits in verse 9. And what the Israelites would do here is as soon as they saw barley pop up in their fields and it, it showed a, you know, an ear or a green bud emerging, they would gather that up and they would give that back to God. And that was a sign, it's not the full harvest coming in, but it was a sign that God was providing for them. And so they would celebrate the first appearance of fruits. It's called the first sign of the harvest. And that showed them that God was guaranteeing a greater harvest to come. Christ, when he rose from the dead, is pictured as that first sign of the harvest. So 1 Corinthians 15, this is a passage where Paul is talking about the resurrection and life after death. And he says, So in Christ all will be made alive, 
but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. So by seeing Christ rise from the dead, that's a guarantee of a greater resurrection and harvest to come. The next festival, in verse 15 onwards, is the festival of weeks. Now, we're just skating through this pretty... Yep, we're there. Okay. Um, and this, is, uh, this happened 49 days after the Feast of uh, first fruits. So 49 days they would count, and then on the 50th day, they would, not for a week, but for one day, celebrate the full harvest that had now sort of grown up and matured. They would gather that up, and they would bake bread with it and give that to the Lord... And that signified that God had given them uh, full provision. Because of the redemption, he'd brought them into the land, and now there's a full provision of uh, food that they can harvest. And later, this is interesting too, later, um, later Jewish traditions used to consider that it was 50 days from Passover to when they arrived at Mount Sinai, and God gave them the law. Now, if that is in the background, there's an interesting connection in Acts 2. So we flick to the next screen. The day of Pentecost in the New Testament, 50 days after Jesus, um, his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit arrives on people. God is gathering believers from all over the world from that point on. And it's also the, the point when he writes God's law upon our hearts. So that could be a very interesting parallel. The next, uh, next uh, festival is the Festival of Trumpets in uh, verse 23. This is like their New Year Day, so January 1st for the Israelite, and they would blast a trumpet from morning till night. So the lost team are just thinking, man, I wouldn't like to be going through that right now. So thankfully it's not New Year's Day. But they would uh, blast that morning to night in order to remind them how God spoke like a trumpet from Mount Sinai and had called them to be holy. They were into a new year and God was calling them to uh, stand, get ready and stand by for the great Day of Atonement which was coming. And 2 Corinthians 15 uh, very much looks at Uh, the trumpet call as announcing when Jesus will come back and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Ten days later after this New Year's Day festival is the Day of Atonement one, which we don't need to touch on at all because we uh, covered that a couple of weeks ago. But to remind ourselves as Hebrews said, that the Day of Atonement was Jesus doing a once-for-all sacrifice. So that's Hebrews 9, 12. And then the final festival, we're getting there. The final festival is the Festival of Tabernacles, which again is only five days after the Day of Atonement. And here, this is a bit of a strange festival. What they did is that they, for seven days they would live in tents, tabernacles, booths. And they would do that for seven days and then on the seventh day emerge rejoicing that they no longer have to live like that because that's what happened in the wilderness. Now they're in the land and they've got proper houses. And it signified that God had provided for them a land and space to live in. And at the same time, they would often 
give a lot of sort of fruit back to God. That's why your Bible might say the festival of ingathering. They were celebrating the provision God had provided in the land. Um, this is a bit more trickier to see in the New Testament, this one, but it is there in your own time, if you want to track it down further. Look up John chapter 7 to 8, um, and it's clear by the symbols and the way Jesus describes himself as the light of the world and living water that that's the background to that feast, but we just don't have time to, to go there any further. Isn't it wonderful that in God's calendar for the Israelites, he's got all these times, all these moments where they stop and they remember their great redemption. It was marked for them. They did it every week, every month, every year. It's beautiful. They put first things first. God time came first. When they went through this calendar, they weren't just thinking about an event that happened way off in the past. By doing these festivals, they were recapturing the event for today. In the present, they were experiencing the results of it. It's quite unique the way Israelites think about time. We, with our Gregorian calendar here in Australia, we think of time as a line. So there's an event that happens and we conceive of ourselves as progressively moving away from that event. The event is in the past. It's historic. But for the Israelite, they saw time more as a circle. So the event kept coming back around. It wasn't just in the past. It kept coming back around. They continued to experience it. The Hebrew word for festival is hug, and it sounds exactly the same, or almost the same, as circle. Hug. It's up on the board. So the festival kept coming around. The event kept being re-experienced. But not just as a circle... Leviticus pushes us, if you were to dive into chapter 25, where you probably did in growth group, the Sabbath year and then the Jubilee, you see that time, the Sabbath time, expands and it grows. So they conceive of time as a spiral. So it's not unlike today being the 1st of December when we get out the Christmas decorations, which we must do. <laughs> Got to be a traditional Christmas person. Um, you, you put your tinsel at the top and you spiral around, don't you? And the loops get bigger and bigger. So as the Israelite feasts and festivals came around, they, their time in their calendar was that they were coming back to the same point, but they were also moving on. They saw that time was expanding, that the event just didn't happen for a day or a week and you experienced it and then you you return to normal, you anticipated that there was a greater and more larger day to come. The Jubilee, seven times seven years. So on the 49th or 50th year, they would have a massive, supersized Sabbath where all the great things of the festivals were expressed, where slaves were freed, debts were paid, um, if you had sold land and had gone bad for you, that was uh, 
that came back to you. Actually, you got your land back, the great gift that God gave you. Just imagine a world like that. It's kind of hard to imagine a world like that. No debt. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just hearing words from John Lennon as I said that. (laughs) Imagine, well, there's John Lennon. um, Michael Jackson did heal the world, so he was hoping for it. What's something more uh, contemporary? John Mayer, waiting on the world to change. Okay, so everyone's expecting a world to be big and large and even and fair, like the year of Jubilee, but we know it won't happen. It doesn't come off. Probably didn't happen for the Israelites. Do you remember, what was it, 13 years ago, Jubilee 2000? In the year 2000, uh, Bono and some other big time personalities, they lobbied corporations in the West and governments to cancel the debt of third world countries. It uh, didn't really go to plan. Um, some countries in Africa and Latin America have so much debt and poverty that they will never, ever raise their head from that. And there's debt in America as well. They want to raise the debt ceiling. People are slaves to their jobs to pay off this debt. Joe Hockey wants to raise the debt ceiling, doesn't he? The collective debt across the whole world as of today is this staggering number. Have a look. I don't even know how you say that number. Are we into the trillions? Quadrillion. Quadrillion. Cool. And that's Dave Suter for you. He has a mind that would be able to unpack that. That's good. Cool. So that's the collective debt. You see that and you go, is there any way back from there? Should we just give up and despair of a great jubilee day? Well, we as Christians don't. We don't despair. Um, we see the reality of the world and we see attempts both with Israel to bring it in, um, modern day attempts to bring it in. Um, but we don't give up on this great day of Jubilee appearing. And the reason that we don't give up is because of what Jesus said when he came uh, and did his ministry on earth. Do you remember that day he walked into the synagogue, sat down, uh, First of all, he stood up and he read Isaiah 61, uh, which is this in Luke 4, very famous. And he speaks in categories of the Jubilee. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. There should be one Lord. I'm just seeing up there. <laughs> There's only one Lord. So Jesus, he sees the great day of Jubilee arriving with him. He looked past just the physical manifestations of uh, sin, like debt and slavery, and went to the root cause, and he atoned for us. He cleared the debt of sin so that one day we can anticipate a full day of Jubilee a massive Sabbath, a massive seventh day which is coming. I get excited with that because it's pretty depressing sometimes looking at your bank statement and your credit card and then sometimes in your job, it's just laborious and you go, is there 
any way out. Maybe, maybe life is just tough with sin um, and there's problems. We can look forward to this day. Um, we know that it has started. We've experienced the results of our redemption. So we should grab hold of the spiral view of time that the Israelites had. We don't have to follow a literal calendar like they do, but we have been given time, holy time, to spend with God and with one another to remember the great redemption, to experience the results of that and to look forward to the full expression of that. When we gather together at church regularly, we are holding a great festival. We are proclaiming what happened in the past, that great redemption, experiencing the results today. And I know you might go, really, do we experience the results at church? You know, if you put aside our cultural manifestations of it or the fact that we semi-regularly let one another down, think of all the good times at church where you are calmed and refreshed by God's word, when you are encouraged and loved by Christian brothers and sisters. That's a taste of that perfect seventh day coming. That's a taste of the Jubilee. Um, that's something we can look forward to when one day it will be perfect. We'll be hanging out with God in that tabernacle of time, that seventh day. So can I encourage you, as we look through the rest of December and even on to 2014, that we get more intentional about our time, that we won't give up meeting regularly, as Hebrews says. That, that's why at church we say, come to church regularly. Get into a growth group reg- regularly. Get on board with our current day festivals, like the carols coming up, our Christmas Day service, Good News Week, our church camp next year. Maybe plug first things in first. You know, God time. As you arrange your time and structure your year, think about all those times that we can have with God and with his people and prioritise that way because it's great. We experience God. We experience a taste of the future. Let's pray. Dear God, we are pretty quick to say we are time poor. But, Lord, we are time rich. Thank you for the great eternal day, that seventh day that will will not end, um, has started and we can enjoy that. We know that our sin has been paid. Um, Help us to regularly look back at our redemption. Help us to love one another, look at your word, encourage one another, Lord. Uh, experience the results of your salvation now. Please help us, Lord, to not give up meeting regularly and that we enjoy our festivals of sorts together. Please help us to put first things first, you first. Um, Help us to encourage those people that we know who have started to wander away from church. Um, We fear that they may fade and eventually even let go of you. Help us to encourage them um, and love them back uh, towards us here at the lakes. We ask this and we need your help in this, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.